Um, before I um, launch in, I have a wee bit of a cold, so I, I sound like I'm a really, I'm a bit hoarse. I sound like I may have been partying all night, although I may have been singing karaoke as well, that is the truth, but that's a whole different story. <clears throat> um, so bear with my, uh, my bit croaky voice and um, all the rest of it. So this is part six of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and some of you maybe um, sort of feeling a sigh of relief and thinking, we must be coming near the end of this series. Part six, well, there's one more to go. Okay, one more, one more to go <clears throat> next week. But um, I think this is the last week of kind of the, the harder, heavier stuff that we've been working through. Um, and I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking, you know, in many ways, it would probably be easier for all of you if I did a study on Leviticus. Not for me. Personally, it wouldn't be easier. But sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes when we're in the middle of these sort of, these series that really we're, we're needing to go deep into ourselves and it's, um, it's kind of the, the, it's a series that's really about us and God directly. Um, we don't really want to do it, do we? It's just so much easier to talk about something else. It would be to, so much easier to talk about the, the funny rules about washing or purification in Leviticus because we wouldn't actually have to do anything with that today, would we? You know, we wouldn't have to go home and actually live that out or do anything with it. But when we're talking about these sort of things, we're talking about being emotionally and healthy um, in our spirituality and in our humanness. It's a wee bit too close and a wee bit too personal. And I love the Bible. And I love the Bible is full of wisdom and guidance for us. <clears throat> not, just in, um, not just does it tell us the story of this overarching story of Yahweh God which it does, and it's wonderful for that, and it's the most engaging. I would argue that this is the most engaging collection of books in the entire planet that brings us close and tells us the story of our creator God. But also, as well as that, in the middle of all that, there's a story and there's this, this guidebook, or more than that, there's this manual almost for humanity in this book. It's like the creator of all the universe has also given us our own how-to guidebook, how to live our lives and how to be human and how to belong to him and all that, all in this book. So this morning I want us to turn and start with Genesis chapter 2. Um, there's quite a bit of scripture this morning, so don't worry if um, you can't keep up on paper or on your own tablet. They will be up on the screen. But we're going to launch in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4. Are we all there? Anyone need a Bible? If you do, um, wave and we'll get you one. There's some up at the front here. You all okay? Great. So this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the, the earth and the heavens, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Then the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now skip to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Right from the very beginning, we were made for Eden. We were created to live in this place of perfection. And Eden actually means delight. So Eden is a place of delight. Um, when we were first married, we called our first wee house Eden, didn't we? Didn't realize it meant delight, but there you go. I realized, I discovered that this week. Um, but God created this place and this space for us to live. It's like he created this place and then he created humanity for it. And in Eden, and right back here in Genesis 2, there's this place of um, perfection, of peace, of everything as it should be. And no death. No decay. And it's like, 
It's this place of perfect shalom. You may have heard of the word shalom. Some people call their home shalom. Any of you call your house shalom? Or lived in a house called shalom? No? Well, very commonly, it's a, it's a, someone that, it's a good name for people to call their homes because it means peace is the most commonly understood um, word for what, what shalom means. But actually what it means is everything as it should be. Everything in perfection. Everything exactly how God originally intended. And we were created for a place of shalom. That's what we were created for. Now we find that the humans that they, they sin, they eat from the tree. And the whole thing about eating from the tree is that they mistrusted God. And I haven't time to go into that this morning. But basically they doubted what the Lord God had said to them. And that's what led them. That was the temptation. That's what led them to eat from the tree. And all of a sudden, everything shifts and changes. The perfection, the delight of Eden, the shalom of Eden is broken. And it is broken in so many million ways that we all experience in our lives, that we all see in the world all around us. And all of a sudden, you find that the humans, Adam and Eve, they realize that they're naked and they're they are ashamed of themselves, but originally they were walking around naked and unashamed. They were in this beautiful relationship with God, one another. And one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is that talks about God coming to walk with them in the cool of the day. Can you picture it? This beautiful picture of intimacy. This beautiful picture of intimacy between our creator and the created ones. This beautiful picture of, of um, no, no gap, no space, just this closeness between God and man and woman. And we were made for that. We were made for that. We were made for this flawless relationship between God and humanity. We were made to live in a place like Eden that emanated joy. And I think that's why we feel so disappointed so often. Have you ever been in conversations with people or maybe yourself and you just think, there's just something not right. There's just something so broken in this world. There is something just so off kilter. There's just something deep down within me. I mean, sometimes I talk to people and they, they'll, they'll say, look, but I have everything. I have all the things that I've ever desired in my life. I have family. I have a job. I, I have, you know, nice house. Everything I've ever dreamt of in my life. But yet deep down inside, there's still this thing in me that's not right. There's this something inside me. It seems that I can't find peace. I can't find true fulfillment. I can't really experience true joy. There's just something not quite right. There's something not quite right in the inside. And it's because we were made for Eden. We were made for Eden. And we see this whenever we become um, outraged by the injustices around us. Um, Whenever um, I've had the opportunity to travel to with Brian and Diane and Nigel and Paula out to the refugees in northern France, and you see how people are being treated, how humanity is being treated by other humans, and there's something inside you just rises up and you go, this is wrong. This is not how it should be. This is not ever how humans should treat each other. Or, or we see... Um, the injustice of all across the world of poverty, of people who are living day to day with the injustice and the hardship of poverty all over the place. Or we see racism and we think, this is wrong. There's something wrong with this. Because deep inside, we know that this world is broken. But it's more than a knowing. It's because deep inside, we are hardwired for Eden. We're not hardwired for here. We're hardwired for somewhere else. This morning I want to talk about um, how do we embrace grief and loss. And I am not just talking about the death of a loved one, although that is probably the greatest loss any of us ever have to face in our lives. 
But it's more than that. For some of us, we, we face and we experience um, loss and grief in many ways. It could be um, the loss of a dream that you had in your life. It could be a relationship. It could be your marriage. It could be a season of life that you're mourning. It just could be any number of things that you experience loss, deep, deep loss in your life. And every time we experience death or, or loss, we describe how it brings emotional pain, don't we? There is an emotional element of it. Um, I like to think, not that I like to think, but I think that when I, when I look at my life, I probably say I've probably had life pretty easy. I was born here in a Western country. Um, and if you look at the statistics, um, my parents are still married. Um, I was brought up loved and cared for, all those things. And if you look at it, I haven't experienced great loss and injustice in my life. But like all of you, I still have experienced loss and grief at some stage. We all know that life isn't quite what we hope for. Maybe, maybe you think, oh, Michelle, this, this talk doesn't apply to me today, and I don't want you to switch off. I don't want you to switch off and think this is only about losing a loved one. There may be some of you in the room who are fortunate enough yet to not have had that excruciating loss in your life. But we all experience loss. It could have been maybe a miscarriage, infertility, divorce. Maybe it's your singleness. Maybe for some of you it's that you dreamt and lived and looked forward to and hoped for a marriage. And now that you're in it, you're going... This is not quite what I hope for. Maybe it's the death of a dream you had. Maybe you had a dream of what you wanted to do with your life and circumstances and all sorts of things have stopped that from coming into play. Maybe it's the mistakes that you made. See, some of, some of the mistakes we make, some of the sins that we commit, it's not that we're not forgiven, right? We know that. If we belong to Jesus... Um, it's all covered in the cross like we sang about this morning. So Jesus forgives us. We are forgiven. It is washed clean. But how many of us are still living with the consequences of the sins that we've committed? On this earth, there's still consequences, isn't there? You still need to live them out day after day after day. And sometimes the, the grief that that brings to us is completely crushing. Maybe it's the ordinary kind of stuff. Maybe it's you didn't get the job you wanted. Maybe it's the grief and the, the change of season in life that now that your kids have moved out and you're, you're a wee bit adrift. Or maybe it's the, the case that you're getting older and all of a sudden your body and you're, you're sort of physically feeling limited or mentally feeling limited for the first time in your life and you feel a loss of your youth. See, we all grieve for different things and we all experience loss in different ways. But there is a way of working through it and processing it that is a healthy thing that brings us out the other side. It is possible, it is possible, as impossible as it feels when you're in the middle of it, but it is possible to be healthy even in the midst of grief. Do you believe me? It's hard. It is incredibly hard, but it is possible. Genesis 6, verses 5 to 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Here we are, four chapters on from the beauty and the majesty of Eden. And we find that God, the creator God, who walked with humanity in the cool of the day, is now deeply grieved by the humanity that he's created. See, these words, deeply troubled, they can be translated into grief God himself was grieved by what he saw humanity do to, each, to themselves and to each other. And God grieves over the state of this world. God grieves that we have lost Eden too. He grieved for it. In the book of Psalms, um, 
I love the book of Psalms. I don't know. Do any of you have a favorite book of the Bible? Do you want to shout out and tell me? Brian, what's your favorite book? Colossians, very good. Anybody else? Nehemiah, I like Nehemiah too. Anybody else? Sorry? Titus, very good. Matthew, yeah. So lots of different favorite books. Now these are all suggesting ones. I'm going, oh, I like that one too. Oh, yeah, I like that one too. But I would say if I was, if I was pushed, right? So imagine Desert Island Discs, okay, for Bible books. And if you were really pushed and you were like, okay, you can only have one book of the Bible for the rest of your life, one book. You can't have any more. What would you choose? And I think I would choose Psalms. I love the book of Psalms. It is a collection of poetry set to music that's used for worship. Um, But about half of the Psalms are what we call lament. Songs of anger, resentment, disappointment, frustration, sorrow, pain, and absolute brutal honesty. And I think that's why I love them. Um, I grew up probably a wee bit on the melancholy side of normal. I quite like that. I I think that's okay. I don't really apologize for that. Um, But I love the brutal, raw honesty in the Psalms. I love that when I am struggling and I love that whenever I am in a place that's hard that I can turn to them and I feel like I'm, that someone else has penned the words for me that I am struggling to find for myself. The amount of times that I have turned to the Psalms when I, when I don't have words to pray and I don't know what to, to, to talk to God or how to, how to express what's going on on in the inside of me and I open up Psalms and there it is. David has already said it. Or the other authors of the Psalms have already penned the very words that I needed to say. Turn with me to Psalm 13. Um, there's an ongoing conversation at the minute within, um, kind of, well, yeah, within some of the people that I know that write songs and write worship songs. And there is a, there's a growing awareness that we need to find songs of lament. So shout out to any um, songwriters in the room. We need to find a way to write songs again of lament. Songs that express these hard emotions. But at the same time, they they don't doubt who God is, but they just bring us to a place of brutal, absolute honesty, the way David and the other authors did. Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. And then it turns but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. David is saying, one moment, I'm about to die and if you don't show up, God, I don't don't know what I'm going to do. But then in the very next moment, in the very next breath, he goes, but still I will praise you. David isn't being double-minded here. He's not denying how he's feeling. He's not trying to gloss over it. He's not trying to pretend that everything's fine and everything's okay. He is honestly coming to God and pouring out how he's feeling. But even in the midst of the feelings, in the midst of the honesty of what is going on on the inside, still he can say, I will sing the Lord's praise. For he has been good to me. I would love us to get to that place. Could you imagine our corporate worship if we were in that place? I mean, that was beautiful this morning, wasn't it? It was like heaven touched earth. And we, I, it was just so beautiful to be able to sing to Jesus and to see him and to feel his sense, his presence in this place. But what if we were able to come in the same raw words like David? Yes, it's hard, but you're good. 
We see this all through the Psalms. Psalm 42, tears have been my food day and night. Psalm 43, why must I go about mourning, oppressed by my enemies? 77, for his unfailing love. Has his unfailing love gone forever? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Psalm after psalm after psalm. Psalm after psalm. And I love the psalms because they call a spade a spade. Life can be incredibly hard and excruciating. We all know that, don't we? Even if we haven't experienced it ourselves, we look around and we see how difficult and how hard it is. And you know, I just think it would be amazing for us to come. Sometimes when I read the Psalms, I think it's like David comes right up just to the edge of irreverency and blasphemy. Right? It's like sometimes I'm like, oh, oh, David, oh, 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 really? You said that? Don't know if I'd have said that. But he comes right up because he has a relationship with God. We read about David and it says, one of the things it says about him is he is a man after God's own heart. But here is, he is after God's own heart. He chases after God's heart. And he knows the relationship he has is so close. Do you know, sometimes in families um, and in close friendships, you know, right, it's those are the people that see the worst of us. Anybody else agree, or is that just me? I'm just going to confess that. Jason definitely sees the worst of me. You all get to see the nice shell. He gets to see the not-so-nice shell. Um, and, uh, but there's something about that is because I'm safe. I'm known. And it doesn't mean that I should abuse that position and be really mean to him, because that's horrible. But it means that there's this place of raw honesty and where I can let my guard down, where I can be completely myself, where I can be broken and I can be angry and I can be frustrated and I can be annoyed and I can be disappointed and all those things with this person who loves me because I know he's still going to love me. How much more with God? How much more with God? And that's what we see in David. So where are we so far? We were made for Eden. We were made for this place of delight, of complete and utter intimacy with God the Father, a place where there's no death, no brokenness, no loss. The reality is we don't live in Eden anymore. I was thinking of, when I was writing this the other day, I was thinking of um, Dorothy in um, The Wizard of Oz, one of my all-time favorite movies. Should have worn my red shoes today. Click my heels. And she says to Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Right? That line. And I was thinking of this the same. We're not in Eden anymore. We're not in Eden anymore. So how do we grieve well? Well, we look to Jesus for our example. The classic Sunday school answer to everything. If anybody asks you a question in Sunday school, you just go, Jesus? And to be honest, in my life, that's still the answer. If any of you come to me with any, any real problems, I just tend to, some of you can nod and agree to this because you know it's true, I'll just go, Jesus, can I just introduce you to Jesus? Can I just tell you to pray to Jesus? Can we just go to Jesus? Because he is the answer. He is the answer. So let's go to John 11, verse 32. You still with me? I know this is heavy. but it's important. John 11, verse 32 to 36. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's lament right there. This is someone who is close to Jesus and you, you look, you know, you think of, of all the adoration that Jesus rightly received here on earth. People were flocking in their thousands to hear him. People were coming from all over. They were breaking through roofs of houses to get their friends to heal him. They were, they were clamoring. Everywhere he went, there was just people all over the place. And here he comes into his friend's house. And here is someone who knows him, who is loved by him, who loves him. And she says, Jesus, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Where were you? And then it says, when Jesus saw her weeping, 
And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus didn't tell Mary off. He didn't say, how dare you speak to me like that? Don't you know who I am, Mary? It says, when he saw her weeping, he was deeply moved and spirit and troubled. And he wept. And the original Greek here didn't just describe a wee dab in the eye. You know, sometimes when her eyes leak and we don't want them to, one of my friends talks about her eyes leaking when she's crying. It's like as if it makes it less. I'm leaking. I'm like, okay, you're not. You're actually full on crying, but okay, you're leaking. We'll just keep talking like that. <laughs> and, um, um, but this is dry heaving, weeping. This is the kind of crying that Jesus is doing here is where you can't get off the floor. Do you know that crying? Have you been there with that crying? Because I have. That's the kind of emotion that Jesus displays here. Jesus didn't say to Mary, didn't give her a Christian cliche. And I know sometimes it's not because we just want to pan people off. It's like so much we don't, don't know what to say, do we? We just don't know what to say when people are grieving and in pain. And that's okay. It's okay not to know what to say. But sometimes it's better to say nothing than to just give like this bland cliche. Jesus' response is that he feels and he steps into, it's almost like you can see Jesus, he just doesn't step into the house, but it's like he just steps into the grief. Isn't it? It's like when he walks into that home, he's not just coming in and, and saying, oh, I'm really sorry. And he's like, he steps right into the grief, right into it. And I think sometimes, and I think more so, I think we, we don't want to sanitize grief and we want to sanitize loss. And it's like we want to keep it all respectable and, and everything that got there. And, and one of the things that I love about Ireland still, that's being lost so much more in the rest of the Western world, I think, but we still have it here, is I love how we do wakes. That might seem like a strange conversation. But I, I, I think there's something so vitally important that we show up. There's something so vitally important, like, like Jesus, that we actually step over that threshold into people's grief. And the awkwardness of it, and it is awkward, isn't it? It's awkward and icky, and you don't know what to say, and you don't know who to shake hands with, and you don't know, and you think, I'm going to leave somebody out, and then I'm going to be in trouble. And you're going, I don't even know who half these people are. I only know one person in this whole family, and I can't even see them. They're not here, and this is all, all those things. But there's something about stepping over that threshold into someone else's grief that we should never take for granted. I remember my mum, many of you know my mummy, but my mum is all emotion, right? It's all out there. What's in her is out of her, as they like to say in Tobermore, right? There's completely what's in her is out of her all the time, which can lead to some fun. I'll just leave it there. John's laughing, he knows. <laughs> and, uh, but I remember, I remember my mum's my daddy, Grandma Gordon died when I was 15, and I, I distinctly remember how completely devastated my mummy was. Oh my goodness, she was completely devastated. And I remember when they brought Granda back into the house again for the wake, mummy just went completely to pieces, totally to pieces. And I remember sitting with her and and other members of the family were trying to shush her. They were trying to kind of pat her down. And I remember being so annoyed with them. I thought, don't you dare do that. My mummy has just lost her daddy. She should be allowed to feel like this. And if it's uncomfortable for everybody, well, tough. She was, it was like a visceral thing. It was like an absolute physical pain and anguish that she was displaying. 
And I think that, you know what, there is a time to grieve like that. There is a time to wail. There is a time to shake our fists. There is a time to, to beat the wall. There is a time to lie on the floor and think that you're never going to be able to breathe again because the grief is overwhelming. Because you know what? We were never created for death. We were made for Eden. That's why it feels so wrong. That's why it feels so out of kilter. That's why it wrecks us, because we were never created for this. Our hearts, my friend Alan always puts it again, our hearts were never made for this. We were made for Eden. Pete Cazaro, who, whose um, book we've been basing this series on, um, the author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and actually can I recommend that you get some of his books in this series, because they're really helpful. And he says this, in emotionally healthy churches, people embrace grief in a way to become more, more like God. Excuse me. They understand what a critical component of discipleship grieving our losses is. Hear that? A critical component of our discipleship. When was the last time you thought of grief as a critical component of your discipleship? It is the only pathway to become a compassionate person like our Lord Jesus. He says, I covered over my losses for years and years, unaware of how they were shaping my current relationship and leadership. And God was seeking to enlarge my soul and mature me while I was seeking to quick end to my pain. How many of us seek a quick end to our pain? I do. Let's just get this over with God. Yes, this is hard. What's the best strategy to get through it? How many of us do that? So next week finishes this series, but we are not finished with becoming emotionally healthy spiritual people, okay? We are not done. And if you are, if you think you're done, I'll argue with you that you're not. This is a process of, of processing with Jesus because there's so many layers of this in our lives. And sometimes the emotionally healthy response in this post-Eden world that we live in is grief. Instead of grief, instead of feeling it, walking through it, whatever we're grieving, people, dreams, circumstances, we like to numb the pain. Some of us numb it with busyness. Let's just keep busy. Let's just keep busy. Let's just keep busy. Busy, 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 busy. Because if I sit down, again, another good one of my mother, if I sit down, I'll only think about it. Well, then sit down. Think about it. Do you know? Keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going or shopping, or food, or alcohol, or doing good things for other people. Whatever it is, we just keep numbing the pain. We just think, let's just keep filling our lives with all these other things. Let's just keep numbing the pain and numbing the pain. And sometimes we get stuck in our grief. It could be something that we are still grieving 5, 10, 20 years on, and we feel like we can't move on. You see, if we rush on and brush over our grief and our loss in our lives, we miss out on an opportunity for God to enlarge our souls and to fill us with strength, with patience and endurance and lead us into that intimate place with God, just like David had. If we gloss over it, if we jump over it, if we try to push it down and push it down and push it down, then it always comes back up somewhere along the line, doesn't it? Loss isn't something that we get over. It's something that we work through. And I know that sounds like a cliche, but that's so true. Grief, loss, deep loss, disappointment, someone that we love, it's not something that we get over. It's something that we work through. So how do we grieve well? Well, I have 10 points. Don't panic, they're short, promise. They're not long points. But I have 10 we small points of how can we grieve well. The reality is we're post-Eden, right? We don't live in Eden anymore, Toto. Click your heels. We're not in Eden anymore. We are going to grieve. We all experience loss. We all experience disappointment. So how, how do we do it well? Well, number one, see your loss. Look at it. Do you remember the iceberg? Do you remember the iceberg for the series? We look beneath. 
See, some losses are really easy to identify. When we lose a person, that's easy to identify. We can, it's, it's, we can see it, we can feel it, we know what the loss looks like. But sometimes we feel the impact of the loss, but we're not quite sure what it is that we've actually lost. Do you know what I mean? Anybody not get that? It's like we need to go a wee bit deeper beneath the surface. We need to pull back a few of the layers and realize that somewhere back five years ago, ten years ago, there was something that happened. There was a dream that died. There was a disappointment that crushed us at the time that we never dealt with, but we're still feeling the effects of it. See it. The second thing, take it to God. Take it to Jesus. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be honest with God. Be like David. Be open, be honest, be real. Use words that you never thought you would use to God. Just whatever you need to do to be absolutely brutally honest and be intimate with God, your Father, and allow him in. Take it to God. Let him meet you in your pain. See, sometimes I think that that we want to, and instead of being like Mary, who brought Jesus in, allowed him over the threshold, where Jesus got to be in the grief, we keep him outside. We close the door. It's like we say, Jesus, you know, and and part of it is because we can't go there ourselves. And we know that if we bring Jesus into it, then we're going to have to look at it. We're going to have to deal with it ourselves. So it's easier to keep Jesus out. Just keep you out, Jesus. Or sometimes there's this warped thinking that the enemy uses time and time again with us. It's like he's saying, it's like we start to think, I need to deal with this first. I'll deal with this. I'm going to clean it all up. It's like we think we have to sanitize it all before we can allow God in. Don't do that. Number three, take it to your people. Who's your people? Who are the people in your life? Who are your people? Who are the people that stand with you? Who are your community? If you don't have people, get them. Honestly, if you hear nothing else today, gather people. Gather your people. This is why we do community groups, to make it easy for you to gather your people. Seriously, gather your people and let them in. Take it to your community. Number four, slow down. Slow down. One of the the most heartbreaking things for me, um, pastoring people through grief, is that there's there's this common common thing that people experience um, a couple of weeks or three months or six months down the line, and they'll go, I thought I would have been better by now. I thought this would have been easier by now. Why is it taking me so long? Why is this taking me so long? Why is, you know, and, and this is what I always say, I said, This is going to take way longer than you ever think. Slow down. You cannot hurry grief. You can't hurry it. You can't stop it. You can brush over it. But you can't hurry it. Not if you're going to do it well. Not if you're going to do it healthily. Not if you're going to work through it and allow God to work in the midst of it. It's going to take way longer than you imagine. Trust God and wait. Number five, go deep. God is not the author of our pain or our circumstances. Do you remember Eden? Do you remember Eden? Perfection, shalom, everything as it should be. That's God's still, that's his intention for us. Everything as it should be. It's not, he's not the author of death. He's not the author of brokenness. That's not ever been his intention. But in the midst of it, He comes and he brings strength and he deepens, first of all, our intimacy with him, but he begins to do something deep in our character. James 1 says it like this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Do you have people in your life? I have people in my life and, and I deeply respect them because I have seen how they've walked through pain. I look at them and sometimes even I meet people for the first time and 
you're, you're around them for a bit and you're talking to them and, and you, get a, you get a sense of a, a depth in them. Do you know what I mean? There's a sense of, like, there's, there's just not a shallowness about them. There's a depth of them. And usually then when you begin to talk to them and hear their story, you realize it's because they have walked through and experienced deep pain. But they've walked through and experienced it with God. There's a level of perseverance and character building that, that, that can only happen in those hard, hard places. Number six, watch out for temptation. Very often when we are in a place of, of extreme pain, disappointment, loss, grief, all those things, it, it is, everything is all very raw, isn't it? The emotions are all raw. Everything's raw. Everything is, is out there. And it, it, be watch out because in those moments, the enemy doesn't play fair. I say this time and time again. The enemy does not play fair. He will come when you're at your most vulnerable and you're most weak. And watch out for bitterness because that's one of the things he'll use. He'll try to make you bitter. In your pain, be honest. Be open. Be broken. But don't allow yourself to become bitter. Number seven, take care of the whole person. Take care of yourself. Rest. Eat well. Exercise. Do the things that, that, that you would tell someone else to do. That's probably my best thing to say to you. Take care of yourself. What would you tell your best friend to do at these times? Number eight, practice gratitude. Thessalonians says, give thanks in all circumstances. Not for all circumstances. We don't give thanks for the loss. We don't give thanks for the brokenness. We don't give thanks for the grief. But we give thanks in all circumstances. And you see, what gratitude does is gratitude completely changes our perspective. It totally takes our, changes our perspective. That's as much as I have time to talk about with that today. Nine, look for the good to come. It's probably the hardest one. How in the midst of grief and loss, how do you look for the good to come? It feels so counterintuitive, doesn't it? It's like everything feels black. Everything feels lost. Everything feels empty, how can I possibly look for the good to come? Well, we can because in Romans it says God works for good for those who love him. In every circumstance, in everything, God works for us. And even in the midst of your, the worst days, in the midst of your worst day, in the midst of your grieving and in your loss, God is at work. He is at work for you. You just can't see it, but we trust it's true. And this is the last point. Don't ever forget resurrection. I was so excited when we sang that song this morning. Stephen didn't know what I was going to talk about. I was like, yes, that was a perfect song forever. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. Listen, verse 51, if you're following along. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised and perishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? See, the good news of the kingdom, the good news of Jesus, of King Jesus, is that death will die once and for all. It started with Jesus and his resurrection. When Jesus rose for the dead, from the dead, death was defeated once and for all. We look ahead to the new Eden. You see, we're going back there. We don't live there now, but that is totally where we're headed. We're headed back to Eden. First Thessalonians 4 says this, 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, 
so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We are to grieve, yes. It is healthy. It is the mature thing to do. But we grieve with hope. We grieve with hope. And hope is more than wishful thinking or optimism. I love how author John Mark Comer describes hope. He says, hope is the absolute expectation of common good. Hope is the absolute expectation of coming good, that good is coming based on the character of God and based on who God is. See, we can hope with assurance because we are hoping in a good God. In the last few chapters of the Bible, we see a glimpse in Revelation. We see a glimpse of, of Eden all over again. See, we were made for there. Sometimes I read those chapters and it's like there's something, it's almost like it feels to me like there's a wee homing device starts deep, 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 deep inside me. When I read about and I read in Revelation, I'm like, oh, home. You know that feeling of home? That feeling you get when you go home? That's what it's like. I'm like, oh, we're going home. We're going home to Eden. We're going home to Eden. It's not where we are now. But we're going home to Eden. And in all of this, in all of our lives, in the, in the emotional pain, in the loss, in the grief, and in the disappointment, we hold on to this hope of Eden anew. New heaven and a new earth. Isaiah 51 says this, sorrow and sign will flee away. It'll flee away. It'll be but a distant memory. That is our future. That's where we're going. That's where we're heading. We're heading to this, this new Eden. We're heading to this place where no, no death, no sickness, no sorrow, no brokenness, no disappointment. Eden all over again. A place of beauty, of intimacy with the Father, of being known and known. Of knowing that death is gone and defeated forever, that we will never have to fear it again. That we'll never have to fear it, not just for ourselves, but for those we love. Because it's gone. Close your eyes with me. Father, I thank you that we have not forgotten Eden. The Lord in every human heart and every person that you have created since we have a longing we have a longing for this place of intimacy with you of wholeness of everything as it should be and God I, I thank you that that Jesus you come and you step into the threshold and over the threshold of our grief and our loss, and our mourning, and our disappointment. And we don't have to do any of that on our own. That you step over the threshold into our hearts when we invite you. And this morning, Lord, right across this place, Lord, I pray that, that we would invite you in. And Lord, we're sorry for keeping you at an arm's length. And we're sorry for pushing you away. But God, would you begin to do your work of healing in our lives and of helping us to work through it, not step over it. God, we're sorry for the times that we have self-medicated. We're sorry for the times that we have numbed ourselves 
ourselves from the pain. But Holy Spirit, we invite you to come now. Come as we embrace the grief and loss in our lives so that we can hand it over to you and see you do good with it in our lives. Because we want to come out the other side healthier and more like you, Jesus. Have your way with us. Have your way with us. Have your way this morning. Some of you need to know that this is a place where you can weep. Some of you need to know that. This is always a place in a family where you can weep. This is always a family where you do not have to put on your everything's okay face. And as your brothers and sisters, we will try hard not to pat you down. But just sit with you. Comfort you. Lord, let your healing come. Would you let courage arise to look beneath the surface? In particular, um, I just sense that the Lord is saying that I just keep getting two, two um, time frames. One is five years and one is eight years. And there was a couple of you and something happened significant in your life around loss and disappointment five years and eight years ago. Five years for some of you and eight for some more. And you're being stuck. It's like, it almost feels to you like your feet are concreted and you can't move. If that's you, would you be brave enough to put your hand up so I could pray with you? Thank you. Anyone else? Five years and eight years are significant time frames for you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, God, give them the courage to move through it. God, um, help them right now to stop the medicating and the numbing and the ignoring and the pretending it's not there. And God, would you show them right now, would you take them by the hand, Jesus, and step into this place with them.